All right, Proverbs chapter 17 is where we continue on in this workshop of wisdom that we've been taking advantage of through our study in the book of Proverbs. Last time, we did not quite get out of the 17th chapter. We went down as far as verse 12. And so what we're going to do this evening is just make our way through the remainder of the chapter, however long that takes us, and then we'll just close out at the end of chapter 17 this evening and enter back into just a time of worship and expressing perhaps some thanksgiving to the Lord and prayer. So Proverbs 17, verse 13 is where we pick up. The writer says, whoever rewards evil for good, evil will not depart from his house. Now, kind of strange to think about in a logical sense, why in the world anyone would ever reward evil for doing what is good, but yet, unfortunately, because of the sinfulness and brokenness of humanity, and the bent towards evil, at times that does transpire. In fact, we know the greatest example of how that transpired, and that, of course, was against our Lord Jesus himself. The Bible tells us in the book of Acts that Jesus went about doing good. Uh, That is, not only did he do the good and wonderful thing of dying on the cross for our sins and raising from the dead and providing a way of forgiveness of sins and salvation for our soul and the gift of God, which is eternal life, and all those things are good and wonderful things. But the Bible says of Jesus during his earthly ministry in his life that he just went about doing good. What a great thing to emulate. Just wherever he went, whoever he was speaking with, whatever he was doing, whether it was in service, whether it was in communication, he just went about doing good doing good things to people. And yet what happened in Jesus' life was his good rewarded with good and appreciation and thankfulness and gratefulness. Well, we know that was the exact opposite, right? Jesus was misunderstood. He was mocked. uh, He was falsely accused. Ultimately, he was physically abused, verbally abused. And ultimately, you see what the world does with a perfect man. They beat him and crucify him and leave him to die a humbling death upon a cross. That's what the world does with perfect people. So uh, don't be surprised if people mistreat you once in a while. That's what they do with perfect men. Uh, And so at times, even as like Jesus, the Bible speaks of in Philippians, how we endure the fellowship of his sufferings. That is the sharing, the partnership of the sufferings of Christ, even as we experience the fellowship of his power. And that's a wonderful thing. But part of our experience is experiencing at times the sharing and the fellowship even of his sufferings. And part of his sufferings, the writer of Proverbs even describes here that at times we can be rewarded with evil for doing good. That is, you do what's good, and yet someone treats you wrong spitefully in regards to that. You know, we talk about those who bite the hand that feed them. And again, sometimes just people can reward us for evil. They mistreat us. They harm us when we're only trying to do what's good. But notice, that's something that really we don't have to retaliate against. The Bible says not to take revenge. God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. And so therefore, what we can do is rest in this general principle, God says here, that whoever rewards evil for good, God says, don't worry, evil will not depart from his House. In other words, God you know, speaks in his word about this idea of sowing and reaping. And here, this is the idea. Someone is going to reward evil for good. He says here, it's a general principle that kind of we, we use the term, you know, what goes around comes around or poetic justice. And he says, you know, those who treat those who do what is good in an evil way, 
It's a very foolish thing to do because they're just inviting the same evil punishment to be experienced in their own life as an ultimate consequence because that reaping of what they've sown will come back around into their own life. Verse 14, he says, the beginning of strife is like releasing water, therefore stop contention before a quarrel starts. Now, you may want to highlight that. That might be very helpful during the Thanksgiving holiday tomorrow. As you see friends and relatives and everybody then starts expressing their opinions about this and that and politics and you know, all the things that we start to talk about as we dialogue. And here, what a great principle of wisdom God says here. The beginning of strife, when you sense things are starting to get tense and now it's turning from a discussion to a dispute and then to a debate and it's no longer dialogue. Now it's one person trying to prove the other person wrong and overtalk the other person. And all of a sudden, you can tell that you know, this little issue is now becoming something where it's becoming more tense in their strife. He says, look, the beginning of strife is like the releasing of water. The picture there is like a, like a dam that's beginning to have a little crack or a fissure in it or has a small hole and, and a little bit of water starting to come through. And it's kind of the picture there. Little issues are kind of like that. They're like a small little leak, but if you don't address a small leak and you allow it to continue and you continue to force the issue and you don't do something to resolve it, then that small leak can grow and it can worsen if it's left unaddressed. And so here, this is the idea. He says, look, when, when that dispute or when that discussion goes to a dispute and then all of a sudden strife is beginning to happen, he says, that's much like a small leak, the releasing of water. He says, you better stop the contention before a major quarrel starts. In other words, it's wise to realize, and I think the idea here is it's never good to push in needless disputes. Are there some things that it's worth maybe entering into a debate over and, and standing your ground? Absolutely. But more often than not, so many times, it is just foolishness to keep striving in disputes that are just, they're needless. Uh, there's nothing of value or of importance to have to prove that we're right and prove someone else is wrong. And oftentimes, needless disputes, like a little leak of water, can end up becoming just just this torrent, this flood, like the breaking of a dam, and create much bigger problems, very heated moments and damaged relationships. And what the Bible is saying here is that wisdom knows sometimes it is better to put an end to tension, especially over petty, worthless unnecessary conversations before a flood, listen, before a flood of emotional destruction ends up taking place. And so look, whether that's in dialogues with the relatives around the Thanksgiving table, whether it's in our marriages from time to time when we have differences of you know, thought or we irritate or offend one another. And so often, I mean, you know, in marriage relationships, so many times when tension begins to rise, a lot of times it's not even a matter of getting hysterical. A lot of times it's a matter of becoming historical because the hysterical attitude comes from the historical retaining of well, you said this, and last time you did that, and, and then all of a sudden we're retrieving old baggage, and all of a sudden this you know, tension begins to build, and God is saying, look, it'd be much worse. Just stop the contention before a real quarrel starts, 
Because once a real quarrel starts, God says there's going to be a floodgate of emotional damage and destruction. Things are going to get said, and people are going to behave in ways that all of a sudden, what started as just this little tiny drip ends up being like this flood of emotional damage and heartache and problems because of things that were said. So he says, good wisdom. The beginning of strife, that's when you want to catch it. He says, stop the contention before a quarrel starts. You know, this reminds me of what he's going to say in chapter 20, chapter 20, verse 3. He says this in a similar way. It is honorable for a man to stop striving since any fool can start a quarrel. Any fool, he says, can start a quarrel. The idea is it takes a wise person to know how to put an end to a quarrel, to navigate conversations in a peaceable manner, to bring reconciliation. Verse 14, he says, or excuse me, verse 15, he who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, both of them alike are an abomination to the Lord. Now, there's that very strong language again, an abomination to the Lord. The idea of abomination means that which is detestable, something that is causing disgust and great disdain. Now, we should pay attention. When something causes disgust or great disdain to the Lord, something is an abomination to the Lord, that should get our attention. And he says two things God is disgusted by and greatly offend him. That is, they dishonor God greatly. And, and the reason why we're going to see here is because they destroy people's lives. And he says two things here that cause that abomination to the Lord. First, he says, the person who justifies the wicked, that is, when somebody's doing something wicked, they justify it as right and acceptable. So when, when somebody's doing something that is clearly wicked in God's sight, immoral, unethical, sinful, wrong, and it is clearly wicked and sinful according to the word of God, and yet somebody wants to justify it. Oh, that's not wrong. That's not evil. That's just their preference. That's just what they desire. That's just what they like. And the idea there is what Isaiah talks about, where basically someone calls evil good. And what's the other side of that? And God says, not only one who calls evil good, but then they call good what? Evil. And that's what our proverb says here. Look, he says, he who justifies the wicked, that is justifying sin, making justification for sinful, wrong, impure things that do what? They just damage people's lives. Wrong things, again, sin isn't wrong uh, because it's forbidden. It's, it's forbidden because it's, it's wrong and it's damaging and it's harmful. And so God says to justify wickedness, that's an abomination to him. And as well, he says, he who condemns the just, that is the person who wants to do what is just, what is good and right, that which is moral, and, and that person's being condemned for that. Oh, you're so Victorian, you're so old-fashioned, that Bible's so archaic, and, and this, you got to be progressive, man. Get with the times. And condemning those who want to do what's just. And God says in the same way, calling good now evil is something that is also an abomination to the Lord. Both of them alike, he says, cause great disgust to God because both of those things, justifying sinful, wicked behavior and condemning what is good, righteous, and just behavior, both of those damage people. They ruin lives and they destroy people and God loves people and that's why it's an abomination to him. Verse 16, he says, why is there in the hand of, of a fool, 
the purchase price of wisdom since he has no heart for it. Now, uh, one other translation renders verse 16. I jotted this down here. I think it maybe gives a little bit of light to it. Another translation renders the Hebrew phrase here. It is senseless to pay tuition to educate a fool. That's important to remember. It's senseless to pay tuition to educate a fool since he has no heart for learning. In other words, how senseless would it be, right, for a parent to finance their child's education and they pay all that money to finance their child's education and all they're basically doing is wasting the money and they're going to do nothing with the education. They're not applying themselves. They're just financing their child maybe to be there at college and just party and live wild and they're carrying nothing of their studies and they're not applying themselves. And that would be the idea. They're senseless to pay tuition to educate a fool since they really have no heart for learning. Now, it seems the principle here in the proverb is kind of implying this idea that it is a waste to spend money and time to try and educate those who really have no interest in learning. And the reality is, is that sadly, that is where sometimes people's heart is at. They may listen, they may give ear time to someone trying to offer them counsel or to instruct them or to try and speak into their life but they really have no heart for genuinely wanting to learn or to change. They're, they're willing to just kind of placate someone, to let them you know, say things to them, and they're willing to be respectful and gracious to listen, but if trying to teach and guide someone who has no interest in change, that's just a vain process, God's saying. You're basically just wasting breath. And sadly, sometimes that can be the case. You know, someone will listen to someone, but then they won't act upon it. They really have no interest in changing. All their interest is is maybe just to make someone feel better that they'll listen, but they're just going to carry on and keep doing what they're doing. They have no interest in changing or learning or being educated or corrected. And again, we have to use wisdom there. You know, there are times where I think when you begin to sense that, that there almost comes a point. I know from my own personal conviction, if I begin to sense that, you know, a process has kind of got to a place where I'm trying to, you know, offer counsel or correction or instruction or guidance into a person's life, and I kind of just get the sense that they're offering ear time, but I can tell they have no, as he says here, they have no heart for it. That is, they're not really doing anything with it. You, you offer them counsel, but then they just carry on doing the same thing anyway, and it becomes this repeated thing. I think there comes a time there when the appropriate thing is basically just to retreat, to be quiet, and to pray. Because they just keep speaking and, and blowing smoke and saying the same thing again and again and again and again. Uh, really, all we're doing is just further deceiving them as if somehow that process is helping them change. Because it's not. They need to have a heart for change. And so here he says... When a person has no heart for it, why put into their hand the purchase price of wisdom if they don't have a heart for it? That's what we want to pray. God, give them a heart for wisdom. Help them to want to learn. Help them to be willing to listen and to respond. That's the, the most important thing. It's utterly foolish if that's not happening in the opposite way. Verse 17, he then says, A friend loves at all times, and a brother is born for adversity. Now here the idea of this proverb kind of picks up this idea where we've uh, you know had that phrase we talk about fair weather friends, right? Fair weather friends, fair weather friends are basically those who are friends when the weather is nice and 
things are, are calm on the open seas and blue skies, but the idea is that when the storm comes and the waters get turbulent and the wind and the waves and the rain and it gets stormy and miserable, that those are the people who are going to say, I'm you know, sorry, I, I, I think I'm going, to, I'm going to jump overboard at this point. I'm going to ba- abandon ship here. I, I don't want to be in the storm. If, if the weather's fair, I'll take the sailboat ride with you. But once things get stormy, I'm not into that. You know, call somebody else to rescue you. You know, call the Coast Guard or someone who can help you with that. And that's the idea there. He's saying here, that's not what a genuine friend is. Look what he says. The Bible says wisdom understands that a friend loves, notice, underline, at all times. That's a genuine friend. Someone who loves at all times and a brother, the idea is just another uh, you know, comparative thought there, the, the comrade, the brother, is born for adversity, that is hardship, difficulty. So genuine friends, genuine brothers are going to stand in support of us even at the worst of times in our lives. When we are going through our greatest adversity, whether it's just hardships and difficulties that we're going through because of you know, life circumstances, or maybe we've created our own hardships or adversities. Maybe we've made some major mistakes, and because of that, we're facing some real adversity, and we're in a really tough spot. Our genuine friends, our genuine brothers, our comrades, those people that are real brothers and sisters are going to be the ones the Bible says they won't bail on us in the adversity. They're going to love us at all times, even when we're at our absolute lowest point. When we're at our worst, they're going to keep loving us. They may not agree with us. They may not endorse what we're doing and stand in support of us, but they'll keep loving us. And they may even love us enough, as the Bible speaks about in the book of Proverbs, faithful are the wounds of a friend, right? The Bible says deceitful are the kisses of many. So a lot of times you can tell who your real friends are because they love you enough that they'll actually wound you to tell you the truth and tell you that I don't agree with what you're doing, but they'll still love you unconditionally regardless of that. And they'll be there. They'll be available. They'll make themselves accessible to help in any way. They're, they're there. They're born, that is. They're put into our life for adversity. And thank goodness for people like that in our lives, people who are put into our lives as friends and brothers and sisters to help us to navigate through personal adversity that they'll stand with us in those times. They prove it to us by their loyalty. And look, that is oftentimes, I tell you folks, how you can tell who your real friends are. You will find out in life who your real friends are when you're at your worst. When life is at its worst, when you've made your biggest mistakes, when you're going through the hardest things, and it's difficult to associate with you. And it's challenging to walk through processes with you. That's how you'll find out who your true friends are. That's when that will be revealed because you'll see that loyalty and that commitment to stand with you. And you know, I think Proverbs chapter 17, verse 17 is also a great incentive and a principle that we should try and live by in our relationships. If we're gonna say we're gonna be a friend to someone, if we're gonna say, hey, brother, hey, sister, then this is what we should remember, that if we're gonna genuinely be someone's friend, that's what friendship looks like. You love somebody at all times, and you say, you know what? I was born and brought into your life and connected to you as a comrade for adversity, and I'm not gonna bail on you no matter what happens. I'm here with you. We're gonna walk through this together. We're gonna navigate the process to show your loyal commitment to people when they deeply need it. And look, let me just say this evening as well, what is the greatest fulfillment of verse 17? It's Jesus, is it not? 
the friend who sticks closer than a brother. Remember Jesus said in John's gospel, I no longer call you servants, but I call you friends. And I'll tell you, for many of us, sometimes it's when we go through the difficulties of life, adversity, and at the lowest of times and the hardest of times when no one else is around. And maybe we feel like no friends have proved themselves, no brothers have proven themselves. Those are the times that we really find the friendship of Jesus, that we find that he is a friend that loves us at all times, that he's with us, that he stands with us. For all of us, there have been times when we were at our lowest point in the loneliest, most difficult times, and it's in those moments that Jesus becomes that friend who sticks closer than a brother that's there with us to stand beside us. You know, even as we consider this in light of Jesus, I think of Paul's words as he's you know, writing off sort of his, his last few phrases before he dies uh, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, as Paul's you know, facing the death process. And here Paul, he's poured out his life for all these people. I mean, he has just given himself to so many. And then Paul says this in, in 2 Timothy chapter 4, at my first defense, that is when he went before the judicial system of Rome, they were about to take off his head. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. Was Paul bitter over that? He says, may it not be charged against them. And let me just say, there's maturity right there too. Everybody forsook me, so now I got the right to be resentful and mad and all these fake Christians and and that's what we do, right? All these blah, 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 blah. And then we get all bitter and, and we think we're justified in our resentment. Look what Paul says. May it not be charged against them. Do you know why Paul was able to say that? Because Paul understood, you know what? They're all failures just like me. They're human. They blew it. They forsook me. They didn't stand with me. When I needed them the most, they didn't stand with me. But, but Paul says, but, verse 17, the Lord stood with me and he strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that the Gentiles might hear. And I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. See, Paul realized, you know what? Rather than be resentful and angry that everyone forsook me, he said, honestly, there's a part of me that was a little bit grateful because I came to this realization when no one else stood with me, Jesus stood with me. The Lord stood with me. And I saw the faithfulness of Jesus and Paul experienced something of the Lord that he would have never experienced. Perhaps had everybody else stood around, Paul might not have sensed quite as obvious the only person standing with me right now is Jesus. And sometimes it's in those loneliest, most difficult times that we realize that Jesus is the one who stands with us like that friend loving at all times and that brother spiritually in our life born for our times of greatest adversity. Verse 18, he says, a man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge. Now, again, in the ancient culture, typically, and if you ever go anywhere, uh, you know, like Israel or some of the places, you know, in, in the, uh, you know, near the Eastern cultures where they, you know, they go back and forth and they banter back and forth over things when they're in the marketplace or whatever. And you would think it sounds like they're going to start strangling one another, but this is what they do. They, you know, they haggle prices and they debate back and forth. And typically when they do that, once they would come to an agreement, they would strike hands. And that was the way they said, okay, deal, agreed upon. And here he says, a man devoid of understanding shakes hands in a pledge and becomes surety for his friend. Now, the idea here seems to be devoid of understanding. The idea is that you're making a deal, but you're making a really bad deal. 
So God says, don't do that. That's not wise. Don't make bad deals. Don't make foolish commitments. The idea is, you know, a man who lacks understanding will enter into a pledge and an agreement, shake hands on something without really taking into consideration. What are you shaking hands on there? You're making an agreement. Did you read all the, you know, details? Did you? And so he says, be careful of that. And one area he says particularly to be careful of is he says, becoming surety for his friend. Now, the idea of surety means to guarantee that you will pay for someone else's financial obligation. That's what it means to become surety for a person. We use the term like co-signing for a loan. That's maybe a little bit more familiar in our heads today. But the idea of becoming surety for someone is saying, I am, am sure and, and offering assurance that if they don't honor their financial commitment, then I will guarantee taking care of that for them. And here the Bible says, look, be very careful. Oftentimes to guarantee you will pay for someone else's financial obligations and to be responsible for someone else's financial commitments, God says usually that's not a very wise thing to do. It's a very risky, dangerous thing. And interesting, he says, becoming surety for his friend. I mean, come on, bro. We, how long have we been friends? I mean, you know I'm good for it. And, and what do you do there? You, you allow the relationship and the emotional connection that you have to a person be the thing that sways and misguides you. And God says, be careful. Don't let these emotional attachments and relationships wrongly misguide you into making decisions in these kind of areas where you guarantee something that you shouldn't or you, you know, commit to something that you shouldn't because God's saying, because it can really backfire. And then all of a sudden, next Thanksgiving, it's really awkward around the Thanksgiving table when you're paying someone else's loan, right? And now Thanksgiving is all free awkward because you entered into something unwisely. So God says, be careful. It's often a lack of understanding to jump into such things. Verse 19, he who loves transgression loves strife. And he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. Now, when he says here, notice, first of all, verse 19, he who loves transgression loves strife. Now, what's transgression? Transgression is a strong term that speaks of something more than sin, which means missing the mark. To sin means to miss the mark, which means you can try not to sin and still sin. And we all do that. It came from the original idea in, in the Greek, the harmatia, which was where they would shoot an arrow through a loop and when you would miss, they would yell out harmatia or sin. The idea is you missed the mark. So you could try to hit the mark nine times out of ten. You could hit it the tenth time. You're going to accidentally miss because everybody has imperfections. Transgression in the Bible is a much stronger term. Transgression speaks of willful defiance. In other words, you clearly know where the line is, and you just step over it anyway. Somebody says, don't do this, and you say, okay, got that, but I feel like doing it anyway. And the idea is just a conscious brazen, willful. The idea is sinning with your eyes wide open. It wasn't you slipped. It wasn't you fell. The idea was you knew the truth, and in your selfishness, you just violated and disregarded the boundary and just pushed right past it anyway in a brazen effort. And here, look what he says. He says, the one who loves transgression, who's grown attached to transgressing in their heart, what they also should realize is they're also going to come to love strife in their life. In other words, those who seem to enjoy pushing boundaries and doing what's wrong seem for some reason to enjoy strife because you're going to bring lots of strife into your relationships. Because you can't transgress and think you're not going to bring a bunch of strife and misery into your life. The two are going to go hand in hand. 
And so he says, if somebody is willing to transgress and they find enjoyment, he says they're going to be somebody who ultimately is going to find they're going to enjoy a lot of strife and problems in their relationships and their life as well. You know, it is interesting that he talks about those who love strife. And have you ever noticed, and again, I don't know, maybe you'll pick up on it again tomorrow as it's a holiday, there are some people who almost seem like that they like quarreling. I mean, they're, they're, we all know one of them. I hope none of us are them. If so, maybe we repent soon, especially before tomorrow. But, but there are some people, it's almost like, you know, their favorite indoor sport is arguing. And, and, and they just, they like strife. They just like quarreling. There's something, they just like a good argument. If they can't find one, they'll start one. And any conversation, they got to, you know, trump somebody else and prove they're wrong and, and, and prove that they're right. And they just, they, they, it's amazing how they, they just can tend to be somebody who's just a very contentious kind of personality. And, and some people just tend to like this kind of thing. And, and he says that a person who loves strife, they're a person who, they, they love transgressing and violating at the same time. And part of that stems from pride. Notice what he says, verse 19, he who exalts his gate seeks destruction. Again, seeking to exalt yourself, the idea is to exert your will, will only lead, the proverb says, to personal destruction. When we allow ourselves in pride, in an arrogant attitude, or just in a self-righteous spirit to be someone who we're exalting our gate, the idea is, you know, is exalting our way, trying to make our thing come to pass, trying to get our point across, and we find ourselves in self-exaltation doing that, he says it's just going to lead to personal self-damage and destruction. I think of Jeremiah where he says, are you seeking great things for yourself? Seek them not. In other words, whenever we find ourselves trying to exalt ourselves, remember Jesus said he who exalts himself will be humbled. And so there's nothing to ever gain in trying to exalt ourselves or to exert our will. Nothing to be gained in that. God says whenever you find yourself trying to exert your will by exalting yourself, by self-assertion, he says you're just pursuing a pathway to self-destruction. Why? Because I'll tell you what's going to happen. You're going to ruin all your relationships. That's where the destruction is going to come. Because if you allow yourself in foolishness to be a person who's always exerting your will and pushing your way through and bulldozing people and talk, and, and if you do that, you're going to bring self-destruction because you're going to drive tons of people away from you. You're going to hurt and wound and damage people, and you're going to find yourself very lonely with no one to argue with. At the end, you're going to have no one to argue with. So he says, be careful of that kind of thing. You know, be someone who's a peacemaker rather than a troublemaker, God would say to us. Verse 20 says, he who has a deceitful heart finds no good, and he who has a perverse tongue falls into evil. So the idea here seems to be that it's foolish to think that deceiving people or perverting the truth will somehow succeed ultimately. Instead, he says here, nothing good is going to come out of it. In fact, it's going to cause you to fall into traps. It's going to fall, cause you to fall into traps of evil. So wise people understand the idea of the proverb is that liars never win in the end. It's just a bad effort. Liars never win in the end. It's always best just to remain honest. 
So many times we find ourselves on the losing track ultimately when we have gone the path of some deception or lied in some way. Better to just be transparent. Just always take the path of honesty no matter what's going on, what's happening, be forthright. That is the path to success. He says the one who has a deceitful heart is never going to find anything good in a path of deceit. And if you're perverting the truth with your tongue, he says, you're just going to fall again and again into more and more evil. Verse 21, he who begets a scoffer, now this is a parental proverb here once again, he who begets a scoffer, one who mocks the truth and one who scorns what's right, he who begets a scoffer does so to his own sorrow and the father of a fool has no joy. So he speaks here in this proverb of how children who mock what's right and live foolishly can bring tremendous pain and sadness to their parents' heart. And any parent understands this reality that if your child begins to behave in a foolish way, they start living foolishly, the pain and the sorrow that can bring to your heart as a parent. Now, when he says here, he who begets a scoffer, again, I don't think that we give birth to our child with the goal to turn them into a scoffer. Hey, let, let me give birth to a real scoffer. Why don't we have a little fool? Want to have a little fool? Let's create a fool. Let's just create an absolute fool to go around and live foolishly and cause us problems, and we can bail them out of prison and, you know, have to get them in and out of rehabs, and we can, you know, get them out of trouble with the law all the time, and they can go around town and mess up our name. I mean, no parent does that willingly. So, again, I think the idea here we need to keep in mind is, is a twofold thing, is that can happen in two ways, and I think it's important to be sensitive to the fact of that, that a child becoming a scoffer of what's moral and true and right, just mocking and making light of such things and, and living like an absolute fool, even as an adult, that can tend to happen one of two ways. One way it can happen is we can, to some degree, err in our parenting. And I think we always need to be open and responsible to that to a degree. We can err in our parenting and fail to properly guide and train and correct our own children. And if we want to try and be their buddy or we want to try and be too soft or we want to try and not keep proper boundaries, we can create to a degree by our poor parenting a child to some degree that turns into a fool. And I think if we've done that to some degree, we should take responsibility for that. And we should reevaluate if perhaps if there's still opportunity to step back in and to course correct in regards to that, that if we've produced a fool in some of our poor parenting, he says, sadly, what we've done is we've all produced a bunch of sorrow for our own heart. And that's a very difficult thing for a parent to realize to some degree if they've contributed to some of that. And now he says, to beget a scoffer, you do so to your own sorrow. You bring sorrow and heartbreak. Now, what's the antidote to that? I think the antidote to that is simply to be proactive, is that as parents, we should do all that we can to focus on raising children who don't mock and disregard the truth and do everything we can as parents to discipline, to guide, and to train our children and to be diligent and listen. Boy, as my kids got older, the biggest thing I have constantly hearing the Holy Spirit telling me all the time is don't pull up too soon. Don't pull up too soon. Don't get lazy. Don't get lazy. Don't get lazy. And the longer I raised them, I just felt like the longer I raised them, that was the constant theme I kept hearing the Lord telling me. Until the day they step out independently, don't get lazy. 
You drop your guard for a moment. Don't get lazy because oftentimes that's where it can begin to happen. And so we have to do everything we can as parents to be diligent and focus on raising a child that does not live like a fool, but helping to cultivate a wise and moral and responsible child. Now, that being said, listen, God was the perfect parent. And what did God end up with Adam and Eve? Two foolish prodigals, right? And so look, there's also this idea that there shouldn't be this condemnation and woe is me and I'm horrible because the reality is, look, you can do everything right as a parent and you can be a fantastic parent and a committed parent and raise your kids in the ways of the Lord and have done everything right. But the bottom line is children have a free will and so they can exercise their free will. And they can choose to rebel against God and rebel against their parents and live in rebellion to good parenting and break a parent's heart. And what he's conveying here is the idea is that when your child begins to scoff what is good and right and mock and make light of it and they begin to live like a fool, he says it causes sorrow to a parent's heart. It breaks a parent's heart. It's not just wrong. It's, it's painful. It causes great damage and heartbreak to the parent. Now, verse 22, he says here, a merry heart does good like medicine, but a broken spirit dries the bones. So notice here, wise to know, the Bible says, verse 22, that our mental and emotional condition, whether it's a merry, joyful, happy heart, or a broken spirit being despondent and depressed, our mental and emotional condition, the Bible says, can directly influence our physical health. And studies have proven this, right? Studies have proven whether it's despondency and depression and hopelessness or whether it's the good things that are released chemically, the endorphins when we're, when we're happy and joyful and laughing, that it truly can affect our physical health and our physical condition. And look, the reality is life is hard, man. Life on this earth is really, really hard. There are lots of reasons to struggle and hard things that we all go through so the Bible says to us, wisdom understands that there's something we said for a merry heart that it does good, actually like medicine. The idea is to be able to be joyful, to be happy, to enjoy life, to have some laughter, to laugh and to smile. He says, it's actually something that does good for you. It's actually like medicinal. It's actually like medicinal. It brings something of health to you to be able to laugh together and enjoy life, and it produces a medicinal effect. I think there's nothing wrong with having a sense of humor and laughing and enjoying. This is like good medicine, where in contrast, someone, when they have a broken spirit and they're depressed and discouraged and they're just focused on hopelessness, he says it just dries out a life, and it causes a person to just really feel like the life is kind of just being drained out of their bones. Verse 23, a wicked man accepts a bribe behind the back to pervert the ways of justice. So the idea there is someone who is willing to accept a bribe behind the back. That's someone who's willing to take a payoff, right? Some kind of financial uh, enrichment for their own selfish gain, and therefore they're willing to accept some secret enrichment personally, and therefore they're willing to twist what they know is right for personal gain. He says, those who do such things are wicked people. And yet, sadly, the proverb speaks of just the reality that there are some who will accept a bribe behind the back in private and then therefore pervert the ways of justice. Some will compromise what they know is right for personal gain financially. 
And sadly, we see this happen from time to time. It happens in corrupt judicial systems. It happens in crooked businesses. Sadly, I hate to say, it even happens to some degree in religious settings where people for personal enrichment will pervert the ways of justice. And the tragedy of it, God knows, is that proves not only a total lack of integrity, but it defies the office of one who should have been trusted, and it ruins people's confidence in a system, right? Because when a system judicially becomes corrupt, people lose confidence in the system. And that's never a good thing, no matter what the system may be. He says, verse 24, wisdom is in the sight of him who has understanding, but the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. So wisdom is in the sight right in front of the one who has understanding, but notice the eyes of the foolish person are way out on the ends of the earth. The idea here seems to be wise people are always aware and paying attention and understanding matters that are right in front of them. They have their eyes on what's right in front of them. They're paying attention to what's going on. And so therefore, because they're paying attention to what's right in front of them, they're being responsive and attentive to what is right in front of them. And they're addressing what's in plain sight rather than daydreaming about something way out there. And God says there's wisdom to that. Paying attention, living in the moment, living in the day, paying attention to your present affairs. Instead of daydreaming about what's all the way out there or what may be or what could be, God says, how about you just live in reality? How about you just use wisdom and foot? And God says, wise people with understanding, they just pay attention to what's right in front of them. They give their full attention to such things and address what's in plain sight. Where notice he says, the one who is foolish, the eyes of a fool are on the ends of the earth. The idea is the foolish person, instead of paying attention to what's right in front of them, they ignore reality right in front of them. And they're always looking down the road daydreaming. And instead of paying attention to what's happening right now, they're always talking about, well, someday or down the road, or, and they're always busy daydreaming and daydreaming and daydreaming, and there's so much daydreaming about, well, eventually I'm going to do that, and someday I'm going to do that. They disregard the present responsibility right in front of their face. And God says, how about we stop daydreaming about what may be, and we address what is right now? God says the wise person focused on what's in front of them, the fool, their eyes are distracted looking down the road at things that are even something of no guarantee. Verse 25, very similar to our prior proverb, a foolish son is a grief to his father and bitterness to her who bore him. So again, there's that same idea repeated, the heartbreak of a foolish child, the, the grief and bitterness it brings to his parents. Verse 26, also to punish the righteous is not good, nor to strike princes for their uprightness. So people or leaders who do what is righteous, whether it's a person or a prince, a person or a leader, he says to punish someone for doing what's righteous is never a good thing. When someone does what's righteous, they should be honored for that, right? They should be rewarded for doing what's righteous. So for someone to punish someone, and again, watch what happens, sadly, you know, in culture and society and government, again, people legislating laws to punish people for doing what's righteous in the society. Something drastically wrong with that, God says, to punish someone for doing what is righteous. Verse 27, again, verse 28, great verses, practical wisdom here. He says, verse 27, he who has knowledge spares his words, and a man of understanding is of a calm spirit. Man, what, 
What a great insight of wisdom to seek to walk out in the days ahead, knowing how to spare our words. He says there in verse 27, he who has knowledge spares his words. Again, using reservation in how much we talk or what we say, what we choose not to say. Again, remember, we've said before, we don't always have to say all that we can. We don't always have to say all that we could. What we have to say is what we need to. And the greatest example of that is God. If God said all that he could, your Bible would be much bigger than what you're holding this evening. Can you imagine all that God could say? God didn't say everything he could say. He said what he needed to say. And, and this is what we hold as a treasure, and this is more than sufficient. And so as human beings, sometimes we make the mistake, remember, we saw a proverb before, in the multitude of what? Words, sin is not lacking. And so sometimes we make the mistake of not sparing our words, whether speaking when we shouldn't, maybe when we should have been silent, or stopping ourselves from saying more. And again, I think this is even very important, too, in regards to just being careful that we don't just at times in conversations with people be someone who becomes guilty of just talking incessantly, you know, just kind of like almost like nervous, nervous chatter, like you always have to fill up the empty space in the room. And so we don't want to be someone who just is an individual who it's almost as if like a, like, like a nervous issue and foolishness. We always feel like we have to just say something or make a joke or always be saying something all the time and just incessantly filling up the room. God says, look, that's okay. He says, he who has knowledge, who knows the most, actually, times they spare their words. They, they, they say what's meaningful. They say what's valuable. And so again, great wisdom to try and seek to implement, learning how to spare our words. And he says, and a man of understanding is someone of calm spirit. That is realizing you can maintain a calm spirit. Why? Because you're a man of understanding. What do you understand? You understand that you don't have to keep everything in control. See, when, when our spirit goes from being calm to chaotic, and a lot of times what that is is we feel like that we need to take control of everything. And so that's why we get agitated or worked up or we start behaving the way we do because we're basically trying to take control. And he says, a man of understanding realizes God's in control. I can stay calm here. God is in control. And so therefore, I can have a calm spirit because I can rest in the Lord. And so he says, the one with great understanding is someone who's able to maintain that calm disposition. And verse 28, he concludes, even a fool is counted wise, that is perceived, considered to be wise, when he holds his peace, when he shuts his lips, he is considered perceptive. So those who learn to use restraint in how much they say, God says, they actually give the appearance of being wise even if they're not, they can fake the funk. <laughs> God says, by just at times not saying more, sometimes you can give the impression that you're, he says, even a fool at times is counted wise when they hold their peace and shut their lips. Abraham Lincoln said this, it's better to keep your mouth shut and let them think you are a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. Boy, that's, Really, really great wisdom. Sometimes the wisest thing to do is choose to hold your peace and not say anything more. Great thing to consider. Let's stand together. Let's pray.